0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Kavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. So let's pray, and then uh, we're going to cover a lot of verses today, and we're going to do it in record time. Um, I'll be trying to set the world indoor record for covering 49 verses in a sermon. So this is, this is truly a, a feat of which um, trust the Lord with. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have sent your Son, and we thank you for this special week where we recognize, in particular, the reason for his coming. We thank you for your death, Lord Jesus, for us, and we thank you for your resurrection. And we thank you for your pouring out of the Holy Spirit as well at Pentecost. And, and we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit now. I pray that you would fill me with your Spirit to proclaim your truth in a way that will serve the folks gathered here. God, I, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to you. And my prayer most of all is that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord Jesus, through the words of this text today. And we trust you and are confident that you will do so. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Okay, here's the setting of what's happened, uh, where we are, what's happened. uh, In the sermon last week, uh, Rob covered this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So what happened was there was 5,000 men, and if you add women and children, maybe as many as 20,000 people are gathered, and Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds this group of 20,000 people. And if that's not enough, at the end of that, the text re- records that he actually walks on water on the sea to join his disciples uh, and then transports them immediately to the other side of the sea. So it is a text of Scripture that is glorious in what it reveals about Jesus. Um, and then the sec- section we're looking at today reveals what happens right after that. Everybody was very excited about this miracle of feeding. So the people show up the next day and look for Jesus again. Where is he? What's he going to do today? And he's not there. They find out he's on the other side of the lake. So they go to the other side of the sea, the lake, and uh, they're looking for him. And uh, they are seeking Him. So we're going to read in several sections. I'm going to kind of go slow at the beginning. I'm going to go fast through the middle of this passage, and we're going to go slow at the end. So that will be the rhythm of this uh, reading. So let's look at verse 25, and this is the first section. When they found Him, so these are those who had been fed, when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In the Gospel of John, there are many people, crowds that seek Jesus for all kinds of reasons. And he critiques this crowd of people. Verse 26, he says, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you didn't follow me the next day because you saw the sign of the miracle and said, Jesus, you must be God. We love you. We want to follow you. We want to worship you. That's not why you came. You came because you want me to do the same thing again and feed you. You want a free meal. That's really what he's saying. You're here because you want your bellies full. You want a free meal. That's why they're there. I mean, never underestimate the power of free food. That's exactly what's going on here. And it's kind of easy for us to look at this and go, they went all the way across the sea, they're just hoping Jesus gives them more food. I I don't know about that. Hey, the reality is we're all wired that way. I mean, there is something about the announcement of free food that causes people to uh, lose all sense of reason. You know, uh, I remember a f- couple of years ago, on July 11th, that's 7-Eleven, that's free Slurpee day. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but there's free Slurpees, and you say, well, how big of a Slurpee? A 7.11 ounce Slurpee. So it's about like this big. Okay, it's not that big. So they're free. So I remember thinking, free Slurpees, I mean, i got to be a part of that, and I could not get there until late in the afternoon. So I got to the 7-Eleven, and... Uh, they were out. They were out of the free cups. And, I mean, you couldn't, you know, I, can I do this? Or, you know, you can mess up. But there's just, you can't do that. So you can get a big cup. you got to pay for it. So they're out. So I'm thinking, oh, where's the nearest 7-Eleven? There weren't as many a couple years ago. Where's the nearest one? So, like, I'm thinking about it. I think I even got online on my phone and looked for the next nearest Seven Eleven. And I'm driving across town to get a free Slurpee. This is not giving away a car, a big-screen TV. I mean, this is almost eight ounces of crushed ice, water, sugar, and food coloring. And I'm driving across. I mean, the cash value of an eight-ounce Slurpee, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 cents, I can afford that. I've got that kind of change in my sofa under the cushions. All I have to do is fish it out and go buy a Slurpee, but I'm driving all around because of the promise of a free Slurpee. I want to get this for free. And so I spend about $3.50 in gas to get a 50-cent-valued crushed ice with sugar water in it. And I'm going to do it again this summer. (laughs) So I'll see you there on 7-Eleven. These folks live very different. They don't have cash in the sofa cushions to buy food. They live on a subsistence lifestyle. And coming by a meal is a very significant thing. And so someone who can feed 20,000 people with five loaves, that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing by any standard, but that's amazing because this guy may feed us some more. This guy may deliver us from having to grow our own food and prepare it at such difficulty. We are looking for food. I mean, they've already called him a prophet, and they're thinking of him sort of like Moses. They're, They're thinking of him in that way. And so hes they're sort of wondering, I mean, I wonder what kind of feeding plan this prophet has. Because Moses fed us daily this manna that God gave from heaven in the wilderness. And so they're just amazed by all this. And they ask him, what do we works do we need to do to do the works of God? Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. They're coming looking for physical food, and he's saying, You need to believe in me. Now, just up a little above in verse 27, he says, Don't labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures until eternal, for eternal life. So he's saying, You're pursuing food, but that bread is going to get moldy, and that slurpee is going to melt, and all food is perishable. So, Believe in me and pursue the bread that is eternal life. He's saying you're looking for bread, but I offer a bread that is eternal. What he's doing is he's identifying a heart hunger, a heart thirst, the the thirst of the soul. They have come to Jesus with growling stomachs, and they're looking to feed their physical appetite. And Jesus is saying this, you have a growling soul. There is a hunger in your soul that is greater than your appetite for physical food. And I meet that. Look what he says in verse um, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. The bread of God has come, not like manna in the wilderness. I'm coming. And the bread of God is here to feed you. And so they say, well, give us this bread always. Wow, if God's got bread coming down from heaven, give us it every day. This could change our lives. How great our life would be if we just had snap, instant food, every day. And this is what he said when they say, would you give us that bread? Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall Uh, Never thirst. What he's saying is there is a growling in your soul. There is a hunger in your soul. There is a parchedness in your soul that you are thirsty for something. You are hungry for something. God has made you that way. And what he's saying is that we all pursue ultimately all kinds of things, but we only find our soul hunger and our soul thirst answered in him. I saw an interview about five years or so ago on 60 Minutes. And the interview was with Tom Brady. And I totally respect him for uh, his candor and honesty in this interview because they were giving a profile of his life. Tom Brady is uh, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. And at the time of this interview, uh, he had won three Super Bowl rings. And so they were interviewing him about success. He's a guy on top of the world. He's a handsome guy. Not, not as handsome as Rob Tombrello, but he's up there. <laughs> he's a good-looking guy. He's dating, has dated multiple supermodels. He has... They gave his salary. He has more money than he could spend. He is at the peak of his game. He's got athletic skill, and he has won three... Very few people have three Super Bowl rings, and he's the quarterback that led the team to three Super Bowls. So this guy has everything that the hungry heart could want in life. He's got popularity, he's got fame, he's got money, he's got women, he's got strength, he's got athleticism, he's very intelligent in the interview, he's articulate, he's attractive. He's got the whole package. And this is what he said in the interview. This is an exact quote, but it's very close. They were saying, what's it like to have all of this, the money, the three Super Bowls? And this is what he said. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. Tom Brady was identifying, unbeknownst to him I assume, identifying what Jesus is talking about here. There is a hunger in your soul. They come looking for food. Jesus says there's an appetite for something much greater in you. And we pursue all kinds of things trying to fill the hunger of our soul. We pursue all kinds of things trying to quench the thirst of our soul. Listen, you can succeed in your job and continue to move up the corporate ladder. You can own the company and do great, but I promise you that will not answer the hunger of your soul. There are single people in the room who assume that if I just find a husband, if, I, if God just provides a wife, my, that would be my answer. Life would be fulfilled. It would be great then. Listen, ladies, God may provide for you a wonderful husband. And he will be a great husband. He will be a terrible God. Because he will not fulfill the hunger of your heart. He can't. And the same goes for your wife, gentlemen. There is nothing... You you could say, if I just had this much money. They're thinking, if we never had to worry about a meal. If we never had to worry about food because it was just taken. Give us this bread always, Jesus. If I just had enough money, I promise you, you'd need a little bit more. And a little bit more. And a little bit more. And it would be like chasing wind. You can't grab it. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't sustain. You'll wake up like Tom Brady, who has everything, and say, I think there just... It feels like there must be more. Is this all there is? And Jesus is saying that is the case. You cannot answer the hunger of your heart with sex, with leisure. You can't answer the hunger of your heart with religious activity. That's what these folks were doing. They're at the synagogue, by the way. They're at church talking to Jesus about this. Later in the passage, it says they're at the synagogue. You can't do enough religious activity that you say, now, there's a sense of fulfillment and rest in my heart. I mean, there are people that are working their brains out and slaving to have a big enough nest egg that when they hit 60, 65, 70, whatever it is, boy, things have changed, 95. I mean, there's people working. There's people working at their own funeral home, doing their own funeral. I mean, people are working until their death these days. But if you can get it done by 65, there are people thinking, if I can just work and it's 65, then I can rest. And I'll sit back and I'll say, ah, I'm rested. And the answer is you won't be rested in your soul you'll arrive there and say, ah, I thought there would be more than this. I thought there would be more than this. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I feed you so that you never hunger and you never thirst. Jesus answers the longing of our souls. Bread is a staple of nutrition. And he's saying, I am that bread For your soul. The author Mark Johnston, who wrote a commentary on John that a lot of you are reading as we go through this, he said, The deepest human need is not met by a something, but by a someone. And that someone is Jesus. The deepest human need is not met by a something, but a someone. Fill in the blank. Here's a fill in the blank pop quiz for you. What are you looking for today? Fill in this blank. I would really be happy if fill-in-the-blank. My life would be set if fill-in-the-blank. My life would be so much better if fill-in-the-blank. I am so hoping for fill-in-the-blank. Now we're going to grade your test. If you have something in the blanks, You'll never be fulfilled. Someone must appear in those blanks. And his name is Jesus. He is the bread that satisfies the hunger of our hearts. And he goes on to say in the same verses that we just read, if you believe, you'll never thirst. He goes on to describe how you come to him. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So he says, look, the Father's giving people to me, to follow me, to know me, to be satisfied, Jesus says. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. Matter of fact, he goes on to what we just read. He says, I'll raise them up in the last day. Jesus is saying, God, give, God the Father is giving people to me, the Son. They are coming to me. So which is it? Do we come to Jesus or does God bring us to Jesus? Both. God brings us, God chooses us, God brings us to Jesus, but we come to Jesus. It's just that the accent is on his giving us to Christ here. And he says, I will hang on to them. He's giving us something eternal here. The bread physically is eaten or the bread is moldy and it's no good for anything. But he's saying, if you come to me, the Father will give you to me. I will hold on to you for your whole life. And at the end of time... I will resurrect you. And elsewhere in the Bible it says that we're resurrected with a new spiritual body to live in a new heavens and a new earth with Christ forever. So he's saying, the bread I'm offering is eternal. You come to me and you will never hunger in your soul for the rest of your life. You'll physically hunger, you'll suffer, you'll have difficulties to be sure. But in this life, you will never hunger in your soul because I will satisfy you. And there's coming a day when you'll be resurrected and you'll never hunger physically. You'll never suffer physically. You'll be with with me in eternity for glory, with glory. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But they have to believe. So do you and I. He's saying you must believe. Look at verse 40 again. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Believe. He's saying believe. You're you're wanting bread. You're wanting me to meet your physical needs. You're asking what are the works we need to do. And I'm saying believe, Jesus would say, believe in him. Well, so they're seeking, and he says, I'm the bread, believe. The second passage here, they begin to complain. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled or complained about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So they start grumbling. He's talking about bread. He's talking about he's sent from heaven. And at the beginning, it says they they grumbled about him. They said, how can he say he's from heaven? We know his mama. We know his daddy. We know Joseph and Mary. We know his parents in the neighborhood over. So how is he from heaven? They just can't handle the kinds of things that he is saying. And he reiterates their need for God. He says, well, unless the Father draws you, unless He brings you to me, you cannot come to me. And then he contrasts again that manna in the wilderness. The Israelites had bread every morning in the wilderness to eat. And he talks about that again. He says, uh, verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. If you chase after temporal stuff, you will die, is what he says. You can chase after money. You will die. You can bank a ton of money. You will die. You can have a leisurely retirement. You will die. You can, uh, you can pursue whatever hobby it is. You can indulge yourself. You can pursue hedonism and go for all of the pleasure that you can find on this earth. You will die. You can be a religious person. You will die. But what he's saying is, the one who knows who receives the bread that comes down from heaven, that's Jesus, that one may eat of that, whoever eats of that bread, now he's speaking metaphorically here, it's a picture, whoever eats of that bread will live forever. You you will physically die, but you will live spiritually forever. That's the promise that he is making to them. And then he says this thing that they really react to in the next verses. He says, I'm the living bread, verse 51, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, so he's been speaking about believe and you will receive eternal life. And now he begins to talk about himself as the bread. And now he introduces this other picture that whoever eats of the bread, and I am the bread, will live forever And he says, I will give my life for the world, which is my flesh. So he's saying, okay, I'm the bread of life. I sustained, but I'm going to give this bread, namely my flesh. I'm going to give myself for the world. How does he do that? He's talking about the cross here. He's talking about Good Friday. He's saying the manna was for the Jews in the desert, but I'm giving something for the world. My flesh is going to be given for the world. My body is going to be broken. Jesus dies on the cross. His body is broken. He's bloodied. He's beaten beyond recognition. His blood is poured out, and he does this as a sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says that when Jesus is on the cross, our sins are placed on him or credited to him, you could say. And God the Father pours out all his holy anger, all his holy wrath all His judgment upon Jesus the Son. Jesus absorbs all the judgment that's due you and due me for our sins. And if we turn and believe in Jesus as our sacrifice, we receive Him and our sins are forgiven. And so He's saying you must believe that He gives His flesh for us. He offers Himself as a sacrifice. And then He gives this language of... um, of eating of him, it is a, it's a way of saying of believing in him. Well, they really get tripped up over that. Verse 52, the Jews that disputed among themselves, I'm sorry, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink uh, his blood, you have no life in you. Not like the bread of the the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, in the previous section, he mentions uh, eating this bread. And then he goes into some further detail in verse 52. They say, how can this man say we're to eat his flesh? They are repulsed. They're offended. They are freaked out. They are bothered by what he has said. What's he talking about? I mean, is Jesus talking about some kind of cannibalism? I mean, that's literally what it sounds like. No, he's not advocating cannibalism. He's not talking about sacramentalism either, which is the idea that new life comes from receiving the sacrament. He's not, we're saying that we take, for instance, the bread and the cup in communion, and that literally is saving life to us. That's not what he's talking about either. What is he talking about? Well, he's been talking in metaphor all along, okay? That's important to understand. I don't mean no disrespect by this, but just, just to say here, when he says, I am the bread of life, you should not... You, you really shouldn't, in your mind, think of like a loaf of bread. He's saying like he's literally, like a loaf of bread is standing out there. He, it's a picture, right? It's a symbol. And so he has said in verse 40, he's been talking about belief in eternal life. Whoever, um, I'm sorry, everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him has eternal life. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He's talking about the same thing. Believing in Christ is the way we receive eternal life. And here he's using a physical metaphor of the bread and saying, you must feed, I'm the bread of life, and you must feed on the bread to have eternal life. What does that mean? You must believe, you must partake, you must be one with Christ, you must receive Christ like eating bread. You must receive Him. You must trust Him. You must believe in Him. He's just continuing to talk about faith and belief. He's not introducing a new topic. He uses exactly the same language. Believe, receive eternal life. Believe, receive eternal life. Believe, receive eternal life. He says it three or three times, at least in the passage. Feed on me and receive eternal life. He's saying the same thing. It's a metaphorical picture of receiving Christ. And he's also saying that He must die. He's already said that I'll give my flesh for the world. So he must die and we must believe that his death, in his death, is life. And we must receive our life. We must receive our life from his death. Now, it certainly could be a passage that could be applied, I think, to communion. Once we have believed in Christ and have become uh, Christians because we believe, then we do receive the bread and the cup together and we recognize his body was broken and his blood was shed. So we certainly do that as believers, but we don't do that like in place of believing to become a Christian. We do that as people who already are Christians. Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. So he's talking about belief, believe and you have eaten. Well, they come seeking, then they start complaining because they know his mom and daddy can't be from heaven. Then they start disputing This is ridiculous. How can he ask us to eat his flesh? So they're disputing, the Bible says, among themselves. And lastly, they are departing. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The people hear all of this teaching, verse 60. The disciples, those who've gathered around, they conclude this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Not hard to understand, but hard to handle. That's why he says to his twelve, Do you take offense at this as well? It's offensive and people have been offended, and they ultimately leave. It's a hard saying. We we came here, I mean, yesterday you were producing bread for an audience the size of the American Airlines Center. We just came for some more bread. We're just asking, where's the bread? We're just asking, how can we follow God because you're the new prophet? Can you give us bread every day? That's all we came for. And he starts giving hard sayings, difficult sayings. I mean, he's saying things to them like, I'm greater than Moses. I mean, they had manna in the desert. I'm the very bread of life given from God. He's saying things like this. Unless you believe in me as the way to God the Father, and he's standing there, unless you believe in me, I'm sent from God. I am God. Unless you believe in me, you won't have eternal life. You will die. That's hard. We know your mom and dad. That is hard. What do you mean you're God? He's saying to them, you must believe in me for eternal life. Believe in me alone. You must, I am the bread of life, you must eat of me. You must receive me. You must partake of me. You must take me. You must believe in me. You must follow me as the one sent by God. And then he says this very offensive stuff. Like, no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. It's a gift. You can't even come to me in faith unless God the Father gives you faith to come to me. That's offensive. What do you mean telling me, I can't come if somebody doesn't draw me? I have rights. I'm an American. You can't say that kind of stuff to me. You can't make these kind of exclusive claims. These are hard sayings. And so uh, chapter 6, verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Listen, when you're the prophet feeding everybody for free and the disciples collect what all is left over, so he's got his workers doing the cleanup and you just show up for it, yeah, that'll draw a big crowd. But when you start saying things like, you must worship me exclusively, people don't want any part of that. And they start walking away. This is too much, Jesus. You're saying too much. And it doesn't literally tell us this, but it it appears to sound like there's just the 12 there at the end. Because he says to the 12 in verse 66, it says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So many of his disciples stop following him. Huge crowd. They're leaving getting their stuff, and they're walking off. And he turns to the twelve and says, are you guys going to leave too? It appears like the crowd went from multiple thousands down to twelve. And Jesus hears this from Peter. This is what Peter says. To whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's what this passage is about. It's about giving us a very clear picture of what saving faith is. This is a picture of saving faith. Jesus does not come to earth as the God-man to give his life and suffer and die to gather a crowd of flippant admirers. Jesus doesn't come To gain fans. The fans showed up. They're probably chanting. They've got their signs. Somebody's got pom-poms. He's got people that are traveling for the away games over here at Capernaum. The people, he has got fans. But Jesus isn't there to, to draw fans. People that sort of loosely admire him for what he can do for them. He's not about, let's get a bunch of people who like me when I feed them. He's calling disciples and followers and a real follower is somebody who looks to Jesus and says what Peter does saving faith says Jesus and Jesus alone is everything to me Jesus you and you alone are everything to me you alone provide eternal life there's no one else nowhere else to go no one else to go to see here's what saving faith does saving faith burns all its bridges you know that phrase, like we've crossed over the bridge and there's no way we're going back. We're burning the bridge. We can't get back over the water. We're stuck. We've played our card. We've made, we've made our confession. We've, we've made the decision for our lives. Saving faith does not leave the options open. And we are a culture that wants options. We're a culture that wants many ways. We're a culture that wants to affirm many ways. We're a culture that does not like exclusivity. And I want to say in our culture, people would depart just as fast as this when you start talking about Jesus is God and He's making exclusive claims. When He's healing people, we love Him. When He's caring for the poor, we love Him. When He has a heart for the outcast like the leper and the criminal, when he's reaching out to the prostitute and giving them attention and dignifying them as someone made in the image of God, even though they're sinful, we love that. When he reaches those that no one else will reach, we love that. We love compassionate Jesus. We love miracle Jesus, but we do not love exclusive Jesus because exclusive Jesus says there's no other way. Now I I'm offering you eternal life. I am the bread. I meet the needs of your soul. But many people want to look elsewhere. Many people want to leave their options open. Peter has no options. Jesus, where do we go? I used to have a friend, and uh, he would leave his options open. Like, if you talked to him on Monday and said, Hey, you want to come over Friday night? Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I might be busy. And then someone contacts him Wednesday. Hey, what you doing this weekend? You want to come over Friday night? Uh, maybe I might be busy. comes up with Thursday. Hey, you want to go out to the movies Friday night? You know, can I get back with you on that? I'm not sure. And he got all his commitments lined up, and then Friday afternoon, whichever option's the best, that's the one he'd pick. Sorry, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm doing this one. It's not the best way to govern your social calendar, perhaps, but that's what he would do. And Jesus is saying here, you don't leave the options open. Saving faith means, Jesus, you are God, and you are giving your own flesh. You are dying for my sins. You're answering the hunger of my heart. You're answering the thirst of my soul. You're giving me eternal life. I don't have anywhere else to look. Why would I want to look anywhere else? The Father has drawn me to you. You're wonderful and glorious. I love you, Lord. I believe. That's what he says. We've believed. You're the anticipated one that we don't know of any other. I love after Jesus, uh, I mean, after Peter makes that wonderful claim, Jesus tosses in this reminder, verse 70, after he says these great things, where else would we go? You have eternal life. Jesus tosses in verse 70, did I not choose you? Just sort of the reminder, yeah, I brought you to myself. We don't even have a place to celebrate our faith. We believe, check us out. He's saying you only believe because you've been drawn. It's all about him and his glory in this. This is a highlight in the Gospel of John so far because his followers believe. And the crowd, those who gather for self interest, those who are curious, those who want stuff and things and prizes, door prizes, food, they're gone. See, real saving faith, even when it's not popular, says Jesus, you are everything. Even when questions arise, say you believe everything. These people left saying, that's a hard saying. Are you serious? You're staying? Are you serious? You really believe that? I mean, how could a good God not just welcome in all good people? You really believe that Jesus is the only way? That is too hard for me. That is narrow. That is narrow, that is fundamental, that is bigoted. I am not having any part of that. I'm moving on. And genuine saving faith says that even when people move on, even when the doctrine of Christ and what he's done is scoffed at and mocked and rejected, it says, Jesus, where do I have to go? It's not real popular right now. We judge in the church, things are going great as crowds increase. And we do want to see people come to Christ and pray that more people do come to meet him, for sure. But sometimes in the Bible, God's doing things when crowds go from 20,000 to 12. Because he's defining what knowing Christ means and defining who Jesus is. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, Jesus offers himself as the bread of life to you. That means he offers himself as the one who forgives your sins, answers the cry of your heart, and he says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. If you come to Christ, he will receive you, he promises, and he will hold on to you forever. You can't walk away if you've really come to him, because he will sustain you and raise you up in the last day. And so if that is you, I, I just urge you today to believe, to respond, to receive God created you to know Him and He sent Jesus to announce that to you and to demonstrate that for you. He gave His life out of love for you. So respond to Him today and receive. Receive Him. Believe in Him. Turn from your sin and turn to Him, the one who died for your sins, and receive new life. That's the promise He offers you, new life. That's what, that's what Easter is about next week. New life. Jesus offers new life. He's alive He's ruling, and he's reigning, and he's available, and if you come, he will not cast you out, is what he says in this passage. So I'd invite you to respond right now, not to think about it, not to wonder. I'd invite you to say right now, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are, and I give my life to you. I trust you this morning. And if you are a Christian already, this passage has something to say to you as well, to me as well. Because the reality is, for all of us, we have said with our heart, where else would we go? When it's not popular, where would we go? When it's not food appearing almost what would have appeared magically before our eyes, in other words, the provision is not not overwhelming, where would we go? Jesus isn't feeding 5,000 this day. And Peter says, where else are we going to go? Whether there's miracles of food or not, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So whether there's challenges or difficulties, you say, Lord, you're everything to me. Everything. Where else would I go? There was a, a word shared earlier about fear. And there was kind of a sense that, that maybe there'll be some here today that are battling fear and worry and anxiety. I know what that's like, to battle fear about an uncertain future or what may happen or worry about how are we going to make it with this or that. Here's what I found as a, as a Christian. That when I am struggling with worry and fear and anxiety, oftentimes I'm not looking at Jesus and saying, where else would I go? You're the bread of life. You will supply. I'm looking elsewhere. I I haven't burned my bridges. I'm seeing what bridges remain. Boy, it doesn't seem like it's working to work. Where Where can I go? And I'm looking for a plan. I'm looking for a strategy. I'm looking for my own strength or something like this, rather than really looking to the Lord. I'm, I'm looking for things to go the way I want them to go, and if they don't, I'm worried and I'm fearful, instead of saying, He is the bread of life who provides for me. The answer to our fears, ultimately, which often just tell us lies about the future, that's often all that fear is, is it just lies to us about the future. It says, here's what's going to happen. may not happen anything like that, but we start wondering and, you know, Um, considering and imagining what may happen. And Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. Come to me and realize that there is no other way that I sustain your heart, that the Father's brought you to me. I'll never cast you out. And he said two times in here, I'll raise you up on the last day. I've got you till the end. And if it goes so bad that you die, guess what? I'm going to bring you into my presence. You're going to be with me for eternity. There's this bedrock promise. There's this nourishment from the bread bread of heaven. There's this rest from God alone that's promised to us in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to come to Christ as your only hope, and He'll meet you. And if you are a Christian, exact same invitation. There's no difference. Come back to Christ as your only hope, trusting that He is who He says is in this passage, trusting that he will hold on to you, that he will meet your needs, that he will care for you, and that one day he will raise you to be in his presence forever. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.